Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode, whether you're watching or listening. Thank you so much for your time. It is uh, fantastic as I've brought out the podcast over the last couple of months to talk to different founders, different people from different parts of the hospitality industry doing incredible things. Um, fantastic as I talk to Hayley Bleeden from Australian Superfood Company. How are you, Hayley? The Australian Superfood Co. Co. It's a name that confuses lots of people. That's so. I, with uh, with my own uh, people say, um, don't know what my co part stands for as well. So I apologise for that. Um, now we were just talking about how um, I did an amazing podcast the other week uh, with Michael from Fable Foods, and he put me on to you. And as we, you know, brought out the podcast, as I just said, um, doing some research into your brand. The one thing I really liked about it was it celebrates native Australian produce. And I think that's something in the market, um, especially in my couple of decades in hospitality, that really hasn't come to a forefront um, very much. It's had waves sort of in the late 90s and early 2000s and that kind of stuff. But I think now it just feels like a pivotal time to move forward. So do you want to talk about your brand and how you got started? Absolutely. Um, and I think that what you said was is a really important part of our brand and it's some of the research that we conducted and I'll get into that a bit um, in a minute. But we launched in 2015 um, on my background, I'm a dietitian. And when, when we get out, we get asked this question quite a bit in different circumstances. And it's, we started this business really, it was a culmination of a number of experiences. So when I was studying nutrition and dietetics, I did a trip with my mum and my brother and went to Central Australia. And that was really the first time that I ever tasted bush foods and had ever heard of bush foods before. And it was something that, you know, I bought my first bush food book. It was a real, it was a momentous occasion because it was kind of my first, it was my first introduction to bush foods. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until I finished dietetics and I was working at the North Melbourne Football Club as a dietitian and speaking with the players and um, the Indigenous players when they'd got home um, they'd go home for the off season. They'd talk yeah. about different foods that they'd been consuming. So I remember the first one and there was, I was a junior dietitian there and there was a more senior dietitian and he was telling me, you know, got to be really careful about some of the foods because some of it, like turtle is really high in fat. So you've just got to be kind of conscious of how much they're consuming and talk to them and but be really conscious that this is part of their culture. And this, you know, if you, if you come in yeah. as a, an, an 18, nine, oh, it wasn't then it was after uni, so it was 22, 23 year old dietitian and yeah. say, well, you've got to stop eating turtle. Well, <laughs> look at you laugh and turn around. Wow. But then it was yeah. also some of the fresh produce. So foods like kakadu plum mm -hmm. um, and hearing of these foods and, and knowing that as a dietitian, as a, a food expert, I'd never heard of these foods before. And that was kind of the first moment that I was like, a bit ashamed. Like, how did I know about imported superfoods? And how do I know what they're eating in um, South America and in China yeah. and what the Indigenous people of those countries were eating? Yet in our own country, in Australia, a country I was born into, a country I was born in and have, you know, studied nutrition in, never yes. heard of Australian native produce. Mm -hmm. And foods like kakadu palm, like I mentioned, has the highest vitamin C content of any food on earth. Wow. So we're importing superfoods from overseas for their vitamin C content, yet wild harvested by our Indigenous people in our own backyard at mm -hmm. tons and tons of kakadu plum that you can now source to include in your diet as a kakadu as a powder. So hearing, learning about these things, learning about the nutritional compositions, the flavour profiles, um, and learning more about Indigenous culture and our and Indigenous history, 
it was all of those um, those moments that really came together as a aha moment and a what how are we going to change this that Australians identify native produce as Australian cuisine rather than Lamington's Medjamite. Yeah, absolutely. When when you went to Central Australia, was that was that a holiday thing that you did with your brother and your mum, or was that something you were actually seeking to find? different things no, that, that was a holiday and that was and right. that was at a time you know I was 20 years old second year dietetics um we were just doing some cool things and happened to go on this trip but it was really the first time that I ever experienced bush food so I remember eating this like little crocodile pie overlooking Uluru I don't know if these experiences still exist today but it was mm. it was it was amazing being in that setting you know, probably not as a pie that the Indigenous people, you know, over the generations consumed their crocodile. Yes. But it was just understanding that there are foods out there that are native to Australia that aren't used in Australia today, except for in these almost gimmicky situations where tourists venture to iconic um, Australian landmarks. Yeah. When So you've done this amazing experience in Central Australia. You know, you're, you're back at North Melbourne Footy Club um, how did the actual brand sort of evolve from there? Was it a long period of time between, you know, that first experience to sort of, um, you know, founding the business? Absolutely. So the Central Australia trip was while I was still at uni. So it was yeah. only about six years later that the Australian Superfood Co actually launched. And it was years of research and product development going mm-hmm. from we, at one stage we were going to launch nutrient shot. So my, my background is in nutrition. So it was all from a nutritional standpoint. Sure. So we were going to launch these nutri- nutrient um, shots and we got, we actually um, received a grant from the Victorian government. And then we were like, nah, that's not going to work. I'm not doing yeah. that one. Yeah. And we, so we started speaking to industry and identified that, what, like what you said before, that native ingredients seem to trend every decade. Mm. And what we identified was there were two key factors that limited market growth and it was lack of supply. Yeah. So a chef would put on his menu, for instance, um, I don't know, we've been using kakadu plums or kakadu plum ice cream. They'd source kakadu plum for a few weeks and then they wouldn't be able to source it anymore and so they'd have to change. And the next year when kakadu plum was in season, they sort of were like, you know what, too hard basket, this didn't work mm. last year, we're not going to include it this year. Mm-hmm. And then also the quality of the product. So it was lack of, uh, lack of quality of supply and lack of quality of product and consistency of product. Yes. So, you know, a lot of these foods are coming from outback um, central Australia or, you know, an, an hour flight from Darwin. And the logistics of just getting it from these Indigenous communities back to um, capital cities like Melbourne the quality of the produce at times wasn't wasn't consistent. And so yes. that was just another roadblock in incorporating Australian natives into the Australian food chain. And so what so identifying those two key factors led us to what we do now, which is processing the produce. So we source quite large quantities when the fruits are in season from either mm-hmm. indigenous indigenous communities or local growers and then process them into a, we have now a number of different formats, but it started off as a freeze-dried powder. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we also have dehydrated fruit and liquid extracts. And then we're able to, stop, to stockpile large quantities when, when the fruits are in season so that we're able to supply our customers with a high-quality product, with consistent supply, and then also with the certifications which enable these, these either food and beverage manufacturers or, or um, restaurants, bars, cafes, to incorporate the products knowing that they're a safe source of food because we've got, you know, halal certification, HACCP certification, kosher sure. certification. Was it, was it a challenge for you to build up 
those consistent supply chains. I mean, you're dealing yeah. with, and, and also build, and when I say build, I mean build from a logistical standpoint. I've done a lot of logistics in my time and know how tough it is, but build up trust. Like you're dealing with a lot of small suppliers here. You're dealing with, um, um, you know, maybe other issues as well, you know, with people who you might not have met before or challenging relationships and that yeah. kind of stuff. Was that, and was that hard to build that trust? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we didn't, we came in as a new company, but we also came into an industry where a lot of bridges had been burnt. So we were hearing stories about communities that you've you've got to also picture yourself within these communities. You know, in some of these communities in harvesting time, it's 50 degrees plus. They're going out with no machinery, hand-picking kakadu plum or hand-picking wattle seed. It's brutally hot. Then they're getting paid and, and which is quite common in, you know, in food and in food service, they're getting paid a month after they pick the fruit or in some circumstances they were never being paid. So they were going out in these grueling conditions, being, being quoting per kilo of fruit and never receiving money. Wow. So you're already going into a, a really um, fractured, a fragmented system and a fractured system mm-hmm. um, and where trust just didn't exist at, and rightfully so. And so that was something that we... Um, committed to very early on that whatever we said we would purchase, we would purchase and we would pay. So no matter what happened within the industry and we would pay for it before we receive it. So you pick the fruit and in some, and, and, you know, and so that's our company policy, but then we also have the policy that um, we, you know, we have discussions with our communities and one, one lady, because as the company grows, we're sourcing more fruit. And so that means that she needs to outlay money because different people are bringing her fruit. So she's working within the community, different community members are going out and picking and they're being paid per kilo for the fruit that they receive. So she needs quite a substantial amount of cash sitting there to pay them when it comes in prior to invoicing us and then dispatching and then us paying and dispatching. So in those instances, we have those conversations and we make, we make sure that, you know, that no one's been, that no one's stuck in Alice Springs, which has happened in the past because they can't afford to get back home. Wow. So amazing, it's complex. amazing things you have to think about, isn't it? It's so rewarding. Mm. It has been fantastic. Did you think when you started the brand that that was going to be the, the part of supply chain or that part of the story, making sure that you really had to focus on who was growing the product and uh, supplying the product to probably any more than um, let's say normal supply chain um, would be because of you know um, to me what you guys are doing so well is very much what great companies in Australia and around the world are doing with regards with green beans and, and supply and getting their supply from obviously a lot of, you know, third world countries and that kind of stuff and making sure they really care about the farmer, making sure they get paid early, all those kind of things. Um, I had a great conversation with Julie from uh, Elements Vitamin T the other week in which we talked about how I think either three or 5% of the tea trade in, in the world is fair trade. Um, that that just blew my mind, right? See, like it, you don't you don't think Very. about that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, well done to you to to really put it at the forefront. I think it's something that you know uh, it's quite inspirational for what for what you're doing. So, um, congratulations. Thank you, and I think, but I think it's something that you know it's coming from big business as well these days that they've got. You know, we just completed, or not just anymore, but last year we completed the Mars Seeds of Change Accelerator Program. Yes. And we had access to a number of people within Mars and would, we could go to them for advice on all different matters and just talking to them even about their ethical um, sourcing practices mm-hmm. um, and, and what they have in writing so that they really are committed to sticking to it. It's mm-hmm. pretty remarkable. And you can see that if 
big organisations like that are able to commit to um, practices like these, then real, real change can happen in the world and we can stand out some pretty ugly practices. Yeah. I imagine it must be something you guys have to really think about in your supply chain where you think about the actual grower and not the person in the middle all the time. Like you need to have conversations with with both those people, I suppose, wouldn't you? Absolutely. And I think that that's essentially we are the people in the middle now that we're working. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that, you know, um, this coming year we've got a big project that we're putting in place, a new business called the Native Harvest Initiative. Mm -hmm. And that's working with... Um, farmers, so farmers working with far, farmers and Indigenous communities to harvest more produce. That's the ultimate aim. Mm-hmm. So in Indigenous communities that are wild harvesting, continue to work with them and to work out ways that we can harvest more produce. Yes. Then working with farmers, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous farmers, to start diversifying or repurposing their farms to planting native produce. And the, wow. the statistics, they, they add up. It kind of, when you look at it on paper, it's like, why, why are more people not doing this? You know, yes. native produce requires no pesticides, no fungicides, less wow. water. It's, so it's, it's, it's cheaper to actually get the plants in the ground. Mm-hmm. And then the return, like the return for, say, a kilo of blueberries retail for, retail for about $32 per, sorry, $16 per kilo, where a kilo of ribberries will retail for about $32 per kilo. Wow. And so when, you know, they can grow side by side, there's high demand, there's the, the demand far ex- exceeds the supply um, and it's easier to grow. It's kind of like, oh, well, you know, I've, got, I've actually got 10 acres sitting here. Why don't we just try it out? And so that's kind of the feedback we're getting. And, and you know, we're, we're getting people try, willing to try it out. And then we have one farmer that we're working with. He's actually an Indigenous farmer based in South Australia. Mm. He used to supply the majors with spring onions. He's pulled up his entire farm and has now dedicated that farm to supplying us with native produce. Wow. Which is like just and, and even which is like what, what I find more amazing is the farmer is actually his his aging and he's passing it on to his grandson. And the grandson has taken this on as his own business with his grandfather as you know as a mentor. Um, and it's actually the grandson that's pushing this initiative. Yeah. He's yeah. the one that's saying. I want to be planting native crops. I, I see the benefits of planting native crops and working with the Australian Superfood Co. as our commercial partner. Do you think? Do you think that water aspect is going to play a bigger and bigger part as we move forward with so many climate change issues? And the reason I ask that, Haley, is because my family's had a fruit orchard for forty years in uh, the Riverland in South Australia, in which we've done navels and valencias and apricots and Geraldine wax and all these different things. But it's come to a point now where because of importation of, you know, other fruits um, into Australia, which happened probably in the 90s, um, the water licence is actually worth more than the property. Yeah. Well, that's exactly it. So growing natives just makes sense. When you you see about, for for instance, I I watched a documentary on, I can't remember what it was called, but it was on Victorian cattle farmers. Yes. And for them, it's more it's too expensive to breed cattle anymore because of the cost of water. So now they're opening their land up and they've got this land that they're looking for something that they can either plant or that they can plant and grow that doesn't require so much water. And in, in this instance, this documentary was actually saying that there were cattle farmers that were just selling their entire properties because they couldn't afford to um, breed cattle anymore and were going and their new careers was, were babysitting cattle because farmers never get a holiday. So yeah, that they'd exactly. go, they'd the experience with the cattle and they'd go and, it, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, just, think, I just think there's uh, so many different parameters are going to change um, 
change the way we eat and change the way we think about things. Obviously, the the um, vegetarian and vegan veganism movement has 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 caused full steam in the last ten years, um, and I think that's going to change a lot of beef. Obviously, a lot of beef supply, a lot of other food supply and meat. Um, but I think what you guys are doing is is probably the next wave as we move from you know um, foods that need a high amount of water content uh, in order to survive uh, and grow and fertilizer and all those all those things which are so precious to us. Like I think what you're doing just makes sense. So it's really really cool. And it was it was really interesting with the bushfires, just seeing how native produce either survived or didn't survive throughout the bushfires and what was what how they were impacted and what happened yes. and what we saw was for instance with ribberies we were, our farmers were really lucky um in that they weren't they their farms didn't burn down so the trees didn't burn down mm-hmm. but the smoke from the fires resulted in the number of them not having a crop this season or if they had a crop what they were seeing was the native birds were coming in consuming that crop where they normally wouldn't consume products like ribberies or Davidson Plum, they were because there was nothing else for them to eat. And so we've seen really this, this wave and, and also now more research that's gone into native produce and how it's, how, how it's able to, um, to survive throughout fires mm-hmm. where, say, wattle seed, they've found that it's like a detector where it can change its physical makeup depending on if it's a flood or a fire to survive those wow, times, really. wow. which is pretty remarkable. Yeah, it's just, it's just amazing. I think you need to, we all need to sort of um, work with what's there most of the time exactly. rather than working exactly. against it all the time. And I think that that's what chefs do so well. Yeah, you know, 100%. You, you, give, you give a chef something, you say that this, many would prefer to work with products that are, that are sustainable and that they're, in, and they're fresh and in season currently and they're coming from a local supplier. Mm-hmm. So if you're able to give them that, they'll create the dish based on the flavour profiles of whatever product you put in front of them. What do you what do you think Indigenous food um, um, and supply chain has been in these waves that we talked about before in regards to an actual food service model? Like, um, I think I think Jock, um, um, you know, who's obviously our master chef, but but is the executive chef and, and owner of Arana in South Australia, is probably one of the most prolific um, native food um, in Australia at the moment, doing amazing things in his restaurant. Like, is it? Do you think it's just been a supply chain issue that they haven't been able to get something consistent and therefore it's, you know, just something they haven't really thought about long-term in their restaurants? Um, I think that the higher-end restaurants do think about it. For some, for some of them, it's a staple, like, say, for mm. a Rana or an Attica in Melbourne. Yes. Um, where, but they're, you know, they're charging $350 for a degustation per person. Yeah. So cost definitely comes into it, the cost mm. of the fruit. You know, if you're saying... It costs two dollars a kilo to buy a kilo of oranges, or thirty-five dollars a kilo to buy a kilo of ribberies. You know, while one might be so compelling, when it comes down to it, if you're feeling the pinch, you're feeling the pinch, and you can create mm. something beautiful out of oranges. Mm-hmm. Um, so that the cost is definitely a factor, and the logistics of getting the produce to you. So it's very easy to ship a pallet of fruit around the country, or to freight a pallet of fruit around the country. Yeah. If you're trying to just get a ten-kilo box. It's really difficult. And I think and that's something we found in our early days. I remember we were talking to a farmer and we just needed to test something and we needed 25 kilos of Davidson Plum. Right. And I, I, I had to go, we went to the market, to the big fruit and veg market because they were going to freight it down for us and it's going to be part of their delivery to another supplier. And it was, it was a nightmare. And from that moment on we realised the only way that we can be freight, that we can, you know, 
as part as part of a business model to get fruit around the country is by getting it by at least five hundred kilos at a time, which is a pallet load of fruit. Wow. That's a that's a that's a big commitment by you as well. Like that's a lot, and of it, and it, and that will cost you a thousand dollars to get a kilo a, a pallet from Darwin to Melbourne. Yes, of course. Frozen fruit. Yeah. So you know all these factors, and then you compare it with the oranges and the ribberies, and it's like too hard basket. Yeah. And I think that that's what a lot of people are trying to do now. That there there are chefs like Ben Shorey that's working directly with communities and finding ways for him to move the product around. Mm. And then there are chefs that are working with us where we supply it to them in a processed form, so in a freeze dried powder, in a dehydrated product, or in a, as a liquid extract. And that's what we're continually trying to do is trying to innovate to identify different ways to supply chefs with native produce that they're able to incorporate it into their menus and yeah. so that they can get it on, on an ongoing basis. Are you um, are you concerned that as we you know move past past COVID, dealing with COVID um, now when uh, venues reopening, <clears throat> probably arguably thirty to forty percent of um, hospitality venues around the country probably closing in the next six months, um, from from what I hear on the ground and what what's reported, are you concerned that because it is a um, a really high value product? Um, um, expensive product when you when you use that sort of rye berries and and um, and oranges scenario. Are you worried that this could slow the production of such an amazing product that's really helping a lot of people? Um, I think that we we're really here to support food service and support the changes that are going on and how and 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 we're really committed to working with chefs to Mm. try and help them through this time Mm -hmm. and if that means for a period of time they need to focus on you know it's more about the margin because they've lost so much over the last few months and the end it's so it's such uncertain times then Mm. that's okay with us like throughout covid we've recognized that chefs have been many chefs have been at home and they've had time to play around so we've been offering chefs free samples and if they they got in touch they'd have free samples and they can play around with it if that leads to sales, that leads to sales. You know, we mm-hmm. we won't we we will know in the future. But that kind of wasn't our key motivation. Our key motivation was more to just have different chefs playing with these ingredients and getting a taste for them, and working, figuring out different ways that they incorporate. They can mm-hmm. incorporate, say, salt bush. We saw we've seen a um, a. a baker in um, the ACT who's been creating these amazing croissants that yes. has been, been incorporating salt push into them. Yeah, I've seen that. And mm. like, so just seeing people play around with them has been pretty awesome. Mm. And we're seeing customers come from different avenues. So while, you know, food service dropped off completely during um, COVID, we've had a boom from, uh, from food and beverage manufacturers, so mm-hmm. from um, supplement companies. And one of the supplement companies actually said to us that, um, Previous um, financial struggles have proven that supplement companies seem to have a boost in sales during those times, <laughs> which is kind of counterintuitive considering how expensive, you know, nutritional supplement powders are. Absolutely. But people are at home and maybe they're, they're, they're saving money because they're not going out to restaurants and so they're looking at different ways to indulge and maybe focusing on their health and well-being is one of them. Yeah. So we, we're kind of, we're feeling the tide, we're feeling the momentum for Australian natives that's continued and that's one big benefit has been for us that we had the opportunity to supply MasterChef this season with native produce. So we've been in the um, pantry the whole season and so every week we're seeing native produce presented to Australians mm-hmm. where perhaps in previous seasons it was one or two episodes a season where they'd use native produce. It's amazing. Uh, it's really good to hear. I think... My my sort of gut feel, Haley, is the fact that 
um, if people, um, you know, worldwide start to eat out less, they will care about what they're eating more and mm. therefore brand stories around um, such a great business as you've got um, and the stories and people you're affecting in such a positive way, I think will be, um, I think will be a key indicator in how people spend their money. So I think, um, I think it's going to be really, you know, uh, a positive time for your brand. I think yeah. so it's good to. And, and we're, we're also seeing, which is also comes with the small luxuries being at home more and um, having not spending money on larger luxuries like holidays. Cause mm. we're seeing people looking for things like chocolate. So we've had some orders come in for father's day from some, high-end Australian chocolatiers, which is beautiful. So, you know, it's just that cycle and hopefully having the consistent supply and the consistent quality of product will encourage people to utilise these ingredients more and more in their home cooking and also food and beverage manufacturers in um, creating our food supply. It's great to hear. Um, In the research I've done about your brands in the last couple of weeks, um, I really like the fact um, you talked about a thing called red dust role models. Um, on the website. Can you can you just explain to us what that's about and why that's important? Yeah, Red Dust Role Models is a not-for-profit organisation that we've been... Sorry, I'm watching this light follow me. <laughs> Red Dust Role Models is a not-for-profit organisation that we've been linked to for about four years now. Mm-hmm. And it was when we launched the business that we really wanted to identify a way to give back to communities, um, in, in particular the health of youth within communities and health health initiative programs. And we were looking at, you know, developing our own charity and we came across Red Dust Models and we realised that there are so many amazing charities out there mm. that we should do what we do well, which is creating native produce products and we should let not-for-profit organisations that are doing the work, we should support these not-for-profit organisations that have been doing such amazing things for a while now. So Red Dust launched 20 years ago. And it's launched with a number of um, sporting celebrities, where the, mm-hmm. the, celeb- the sports stars go into community um, as role models within these communities. So they it launched with um, health initiative programs for youth, and now mm-hmm. they've branched out to having health initiative programs for women, so programs that target women directly and wow. then men directly. So women's problems, like women's issues, like, you know, it might be, we all know different um, issues, not issues, but the, yes, the, different, <laughs> different things that women uh, that are specific to women, like you know, childbirth and yep. um, different experiences that women go through. And mm-hmm. then there are other there are the challenges that men face. So they, they split them, and there are women's, men's, and children's programs. And the mm-hmm. outcomes that they have are incredible. So, for instance, when the um, when red, when the role models go with into community, the attendance at school skyrockets to almost 100%. And mm-hmm. you'd assume that that would then again fall straight away because they're coming to meet, you know, some AFL star. Of course. But that is, there's a follow-on effect. And they, that gives them the opportunity to talk to them about, you know, healthy eating, about the importance of physical exercise, about, you know, treating one another nicely. Like it can be little things as simple as that, which comes out often through sport. Yeah. So, yeah, so... That, that's what Red Dust does and that's, and that's why we've partnered with them and continue to do that because they're constantly thinking of new ways to approach these programs. And right now with COVID, it's been a real challenge because many of the celebrities come from Australia, yes. uh, sorry, come from Victoria and then yes. go up to the Northern Territory within the communities that they work, work within. Right. Um, and so now they're trying to figure out different ways that they can continue to educate the students, but then also continue to educate the broader communities um, within Victoria about the challenges they're facing and, um, you know, different 
aspects of the culture of Indigenous culture that need to be learnt within wider Australia today. What a great, um, what a great initiative. That's, um, I mean, that's awesome news. I mean, uh, the one thing I love about your brand is you talk about it is is even more than when I researched into it, Haley. Is you really care about the end to end of this product, and um, uh, it's just an amazing thing. Um, last last question for you: Where to next? Sort of for the brand, are you seeing? Um, are you seeing growth from international markets or like, you know, obviously you're, as we explained before, you're in a pivotal, pivotal part of your brand in, in food service and obviously in um, supplying uh, manufacturers of food products. Like where do you want to go to next? So this year, 2020 and 2021, we are really focused on the Native Harvest Initiative. So working with farmers, working with communities to harvest more native produce because without quantity, we can't, we can't continue to expand the supply chain. Of course. Um, then we also have, we, we, we do have our own range of finished goods, so retail-ready products that are currently selling around Australia, but we've also had a surge from overseas. So we don't seek out exports, but if exports come to us, we're very happy to work with them to supply different products to these export markets. So mm-hmm. Southeast Asia for Kakadu Plum and our vitamin C blend, which incorporates finger lime and Kakadu Plum, a lot of that gets sent to Southeast Asia. We've got distributors in America that we work with, but again, they're the ones that are really pushing it within those countries. So continuing to push our branded range is a big goal, continuing to work with more communities, more um, Indigenous farmers and non-Indigenous farmers to source native produce, and then continuing to work with food service to identify new products and new innovative ways to offer Australian natives so that they can continue to they can continue to innovate within their own kitchens and bring exciting products to the market. Amazing. I can't, uh, I can't wait to see the evolution of this brand. I think you're doing um, everything for the right reasons and in a great way. So well done. Uh, Hayley, thanks so much for joining me on today's podcast. I really appreciate your time. What is the best way that people can find out about what your brand is and just understand a bit more about it? If you come to our website, which is www.ostsuperfoods.com.au, or follow us on social media with our handle, Os Superfoods. Awesome. So I'll link that up in the bio of this podcast as well so you can find it super easily. Hayley Bleeden, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me.